Bibles now and turn with me to Genesis chapter 20. After a week off, and a blessing of what we heard from Brother Marsh last week. We're back in Genesis again, chapter 20. As we have followed the life of Abraham, and as we will soon follow the life of his disciples, or his disciples, <laughs> his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, we have been learning important lessons from the triumphs and the challenges of a life of faith. My intention has not been to look at Abraham and moralize the story. Hey, look at Abraham, be like Abraham. My intention has been that in looking at Abraham, in the triumphs of his faith, as, as well as in the tragedies of his failures, that we see the grace of God as the thread that goes through all of it, holding everything together, so that we rest in him and, and then follow the example of the godly men who have been set before us in Scripture. We have seen that Abraham is a great hero of the faith, and he was indeed a great man of faith. And he is honored in Scripture in this way. And yet, at the same time, when we look at his life, we also see that he was just a man. He was a sinful man, prone to weakness and sin, just like we are. And I love this about how Scripture deals with its heroes. It deals with the heroes honestly and openly. Because there is only one ultimate hero in this whole story, and it is none of the mere men who are given in Scripture. It is Christ alone. But in giving us these men as spiritual forefathers, as spiritual heroes for us, Scripture deals honestly and openly, teaching us by their lives both the character that we ought to pursue and the sins that we ought to avoid. We learn from their example positively and negatively. And in all of this, in both their faithful triumphs and in their foolish missteps, we learn important lessons about ourselves, don't we? We may not commit the same sins, but we can see in ourselves very much the same tendencies. So we learn important lessons about ourselves, but we also learn the nature of true faith and what it looks like to live by faith. And most of all, we learn about the sovereign grace of our wonderful God. In recent weeks, we have looked at the tragic account of Abraham's nephew, Lot, and the depravity and the destruction of the city of Sodom in which he lived. We learned in, the, in chapter 19 about the danger of spiritual drift, that was demonstrated by Lot. We learned about the exceeding depravity of sin, as was demonstrated by Sodom. And we learned the severe reality of God's judgment that awaits all who are in sin. And we see that evil city become a byword as a picture of the depths of sin's depravity. But now, for those who were not partakers in the sin 
of Sodom, for those who were not partakers in its judgment, lest we become self-righteous in our thinking by comparison. After all, we're not as bad as they were, are we? Lest we become puffed up. The chapter before us today, Genesis chapter 20, highlights a particular sin, a particular failure of faith, this time not on the part of evil Sodom or wayward Lot, but on the part of faithful Abraham, the man of God. And this is not just any sin. This was not just a slip-up, a one-time mistake that he made out of his ignorance. It is a repeated sin, as we will see. And it was even calculated. And so this chapter, in showing us the life of faith and the nature of sin and the grace of God, continues to teach us what it is like. This chapter helps us to learn something about what causes us to fall into sin. Us. Even though we have been saved and even though we know better, we still fall into sin. This chapter helps us to figure out why. And it also helps us to see what God thinks of it and what He does about it. So, let's look at this chapter together, Genesis chapter 20. If you'll follow along as I read. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them these, all these things. And the men were great, were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, 
This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. If you have a bulletin, you may notice that the title of today's message is what? He did it again? That is because there is something eerily familiar about this moment in Abraham's life. It sounds a lot like what happened between Abraham and Pharaoh back in chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. So on one level, this title is meant to refer to Abraham and his foolishness. But on the other hand, I also mean for this title to refer to God and to his grace. For once again, God steps in to protect his people and preserve his promise. And it's simply those two snapshots that I want us to consider this morning. Abraham's repeated sin and God's recurring grace. So let's consider, first of all, Abraham's repeated sin. And what I want to do this morning is sort of a, a crash site investigation. You know what that is, right? Think about air travel. It's no secret to most of you that my son and I like to watch anything on TV having to do with airplanes. And uh, one of the things that he loves to watch is documentaries about plane crashes and what caused them, how they happened, and how they dealt with it. And uh, so that makes for some interesting entertainment within our house. But when you think of a plane crash, whenever there is an incident, there is a thorough investigation. And the investigation is meant to find out exactly what happened. Was it mechanical failure? Was it pilot error? Was it something weather-related? What was it that happened? What went wrong? What caused the accident? And what could have been done to prevent it? And then once the investigation is concluded, there is a report written that serves as a help in the future to avoid the same problem. So every time you see a warning when you travel by plane, think it came from some investigation somewhere. They figured this out over time. Well, here, in this moment in Abraham's life, when we look at his failure and sin, we are given the opportunity to consider what caused him to sin, what the effects of that sin were, and how we might avoid the same problem in our own lives. And while we might cringe at the nature of Abraham's sin here, 
What man can you think of today who would do that to his wife? We cringe at that. But at the same time, as we consider what caused him to sin in this way, as we consider the effects, we might start to find that we all too easily identify with him here. And we can start with this question. What are the sinful tendencies in your life that tend to trip you up? What sin has a hold on you that keeps coming back, even though you know better? And as you consider that, ask this. Is there any hope for you as you struggle through recurring sin? through besetting sin. This passage gives us hope by exposing the nature of our sin, demonstrating what it really is, by highlighting the causes of our sinful struggles and pointing out ultimately, pointing us ultimately to the steadfast grace of God. So, I want us to notice first of all simply what Abraham did. And then we'll consider why he did it. What did Abraham do? Well, in verse 1 we read, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Remember, Abraham did not have a permanent home. He lived in tents. He was a traveler throughout the land that God had put him into. Last uh, time, uh, or last we read back in chapter 18, verse 1, he was living near a place called the Oaks of Mamre which was in the general area of Jerusalem, a little ways southwest. And it was there that Abraham met with God in chapter 18. He had that meal with God. He overlooked Sodom and he pled with God to preserve the city on behalf of the righteous. It was from here that he overlooked the the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and watched the smoke rise as the fire and brimstone fell. And now he packs up and he travels southwest even more, almost to the land of Egypt again. We don't know exactly why he moved. Perhaps it had something to do with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or perhaps not. We just don't know. But whatever the reason was, we learned that he sojourned, that is, he he moved around, he dwelt temporarily in a place called Gerar. That sets the scene For the whole story. And then we read in verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And this is where the title of the message comes in. And together we all say, What? He did it again? What's going on here? Well, this is the same thing that happened back in chapter 12. He travels to Egypt. And in both accounts, Abraham sets out to preserve his own life by hiding the fact that he and Sarah are husband and wife. No doubt in his twisted mind at this moment, he thinks it would be safer for her to live in his harem than to be put to death with me as husband and wife. As they travel into these unknown places, Abraham apparently thought that someone there would think his wife was attractive 
and would want to take her to himself and would even be willing to kill Abraham to do it. And after all, to spiritualize it, if Abraham dies, what happens to God's promise? So Abraham's half-witted solution was to hide the fact of their marriage and give Sarah up without fight. Maybe he thought that by doing this, he would be preserving the promise that God had made to him in chapters 12, 15, and 17. It is a sinfully twisted way of thinking, is it not? And it led to a sinfully selfish decision. And it endangered everyone around him, not the least of which was his own wife, Sarah, whom he should have been protecting. Well, sure enough, at the end of verse 2, we read, Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And it appears Abraham just let her go. I don't think we need to work too hard to find the sin in this situation, do we? But the question is, why did Abraham do it? What caused him to make such an irresponsible decision and to behave in such a foolish way? I don't ask this in order to psychoanalyze him and make him the victim of some sort of trauma that justifies his sin. I'm not trying to justify him at all. I'm not making excuses for him or defending him. But rather, I ask the question because the line of thinking and the orientation of heart that led Abraham to sin here is the same line of thinking and orientation of heart that often leads us into sin too. And so we can learn from it. Understanding how Abraham messed up will help us to see how we often mess up. And I pray will help us in the future not to mess up so much. So, what caused Abraham to sin here? I think there are several things for us to notice. And and this, we could probably give more. But we've got to be careful with our time too. So let's see what we can glean. First, For one thing, I think we could say that disillusionment led him to this foolish thing. Think about what Abraham had just witnessed. Think about his experience over the last two chapters, particularly in regard to Lot and the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about the depths of depravity that region had reached in its pride, in its violence, and in its sexual perversion. Think about Abraham's earnest pleading with God in chapter 18 to preserve the cities for the sake of a few righteous. Think about the lasting impact that scene would have as the fire and the smoke rose from the cities and everyone was destroyed. I suspect all of this would have left a bitter taste in Abraham's mouth, not so much in regard to God, but in his understanding of the place in which he lived. And now, likely, Abraham is influenced by a certain level of prejudice toward all the other cities of the region 
viewing them as if they were all like Sodom. Abraham says as much in his explanation to Abimelech. In verses 9 and 10, Abimelech confronts Abraham and asks, What is is it? What did you see? What did we do to you that made you put us in the crosshairs of God himself? What did we do? And Abraham answers, verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So here we have almost the opposite problem of Lot. If Lot had misjudged Sodom by naively assuming their goodness, then Abraham misjudges Gerar and this region by brazenly assuming their evil. He had become jaded and judgmental and was assuming the worst. Furthermore, that disillusionment then led to an unfounded fear or an exaggerated fear of the world around him. Regardless of the fact that he had had enough combat power within himself and his household to defeat an entire coalition of army forces as he did in chapter 14, he now willfully gives up his wife in in an attempt to keep from being attacked by this one king. His thinking is clouded. He is distracted in his focus by disillusionment and irrational fear. He is now seeing himself as pitted against everyone else and seriously threatened by this one king whom he has never met and knows nothing about. He was no longer exercising normal, reasonable discernment and watchfulness. But now he had drifted into outright fear. And then we see that this disillusionment, which led to unfounded fear, now led him to unbelief in the power of God and in the promises of God, which led him into disobedience to the Word of God. Because he had allowed his mind and heart to become clouded by disillusionment and fear, he had forgotten God's promise to preserve him to give him descendants through Sarah, and to make him a blessing to all the nations. And instead of seeing all of that, Abraham now took matters into his own hands, thinking he needed to preserve God's promise on his own and in his own way. Now, there are any number of angles we could look at this. But I mentioned these things, disillusionment, unfounded fear, and unbelief, because this is how many Christians, even today, have, beha- have tended to Can you see how this works? We all understand that the world is dominated by sin, right? And because of that, we all understand we must be exercising godly discernment and wisdom and watchfulness in this world. And yet, as as we see evil on the rise in many aspects of the world today, it seems that our tendency 
is to become disillusioned, to become unfoundedly jaded in our understanding, in our view of the world, so much so that we now become judgmental of everyone and everything that we see in the world around us. And we assume that the worst of the sins that we see in the world today are the characterizing features of everyone we see. We make blanket judgments all the time, don't we? When this happens, biblical and reasonable discernment and watchfulness give way to an overblown sense of fear bordering on paranoia. And that concerns everything and everyone in the world. And so, what's the result? We're no longer able to enjoy the world, are we? We're no longer able to enjoy the good things of this world that are given to us by God, by His common grace. Because we don't see any good in this world at all. So rather than exercise discernment and watchfulness in the world as God has put us here, we retreat. And we view everything in this world as an evil to be isolated from. What's even worse, when this disillusionment and fear set in, we are no longer able to see sinners as people who are created in the image of God who desperately need a Savior. And we pull ourselves back from them too. And we assume that because they're a sinner in this area, that they are almost inhumanly sinful. And we begin to see them as the enemy, out to get us at every turn. And as a result, we start fighting the wrong battle. Because we think that the cause of Christ is now going to be won through our isolation from the world or through boycotting businesses, or through social activism, or through issue-oriented preaching, as if getting somebody on the outside to conform to our set of rules is the same thing as preaching the gospel. And when we do that, we abandon the bold preaching, the bold proclamation of the Word of God by holy Christians whose lives have been changed by the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we retreat in that way, and we lose sight of the mission of God, and the promise of God, and the plan of God as outlined in Scripture, then even we as Christians tend to misjudge the world around us and make foolish decisions, and it leads us into all sorts of different sins. Not to mention that the depravity of our own heart becomes forefront. And we forget that we are just as depraved as the most depraved person you see in the world today, but for the grace of God. And at its root, this whole approach to the world becomes fear-based rather than faith-based and gospel-driven. <clears throat> Beloved, yes, this world is an evil place. And yes, it is at war with God. And it is at war with us. 
And we must be watchful. And we must exercise discernment. That's a message for another time. We must fight the good fight of faith. But at the same time, we also must remember that there is common grace in the world. We must remember what the real warfare is. We must remember who the real victor is and what the real plan is. And so we do not have to think the worst about everything and everyone because the lost are not our enemy. They are our mission field. The battle is not ours to win in our own strength. It is God's, and he has already won it through Jesus Christ. And as sinful as the world is today, God has not lost control. And his mission has not failed. One of the great quotes I, I think I'll always remember from last weekend's marriage and family conference was, there is no opening on the Trinity. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are doing just fine. Our mission is not to usurp their job, but to remain faithful. Our task is to remember God's sovereign judgment and his ultimate victory. And our task is to proclaim the faithful word of God even now in this present evil age, engaging the world yet remaining faithful to the Great Commission and steadfast in godly character. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Apostle Paul deals with this, ten this tension in the life of Pastor Timothy as an example to all Christians for what our gospel ministry looks like in the world. This is what he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, you see that? The mission is still intact. His judgment will still be true. So, verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. Don't compromise. Don't give up. Don't quit. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Now, why does he have to say that? Because most of the time, the word is out of season to the world. And then he says this, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. In other words, speak the truth with a corrective goal. But how? With complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. We're there. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. And we want to look at them and say, you stupid, stupid people. And get into our ivory tower of judgment as if we are not like they are. We pull back. We make judgments. And we let our flesh creep to the top. Uh, what he says, as for you, verse 5, Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I, Paul says, have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so it should be for all of us as well. Beloved, God is still in charge. 
Don't forget that. As soon as you forget that, you have already begun down the pathway of sin. God is still in charge. His word is still powerful and sufficient. So stay the course. Pursue holiness. Love the lost. And trust God's word. Now, back in chapter 20 of Genesis, this is what Abraham failed to do. And it led him into irrational and indeed very serious sin. So we've looked at what he did. We've looked at why he did it. Now let's take a moment to consider the nature of what he did. How serious this really was and how far it reached. For one thing, we can see that it was a return to an old sin. Well, there's a lesson there for us, isn't it? This is a sin that he had already been rebuked for and humiliated from, something he should have learned from. Abraham knew better by now. He should have known better the first time. This was such a weird sin, but he definitely knew better by now. But make no mistake, friends, just because we know something is wrong does not mean we won't do it. Be honest about your own experience. Most of the time, while we sin, we know it's wrong. And yet we do it anyway. And just because we have learned a lesson once does not mean we will not return to that sin again. In fact, most of us can say the experience is the opposite. We tend to fall into the same sin over and over and over again. And we tend to think that God's forgiveness applies to the big sins that were committed once and were so atrocious that, that there's no way we're going to fall back into that again. And we have a harder time applying that same forgiveness and grace to the sins that we struggle with day in and day out, over and over and over again. That's where we need to see hope. That's what we see in Abraham. But first we learn the nature of the sin. It was a return to an old sin. Just like Abraham, even as believers, we do tend to drift back into the same sins if we are not watchful and intentional in following the Lord. That's why the Apostle Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Brothers and sisters, we are no more vulnerable and prone to sin than on those days when we think we're doing pretty well. And you would do well to train yourself that when that thought comes into your mind, it is quickly followed by, uh-oh, better watch out. Abraham knew better than to lie about his wife in this way. He knew the foolishness and the humiliation of it, yet he did it anyway. And make no mistake, it was a lie. Even though it was partially true, as he says in verse 12, well, she is my half-sister. Marriage trumps that. Okay, She's no longer his sister once they get married. She's his wife. And make no mistake, friends, a half-truth is a whole lie. Why? Because it is a calculated deception. And we're good at that, aren't we? Double-speak. Vague answers. What's more, this sin was driven by selfish or, or sinful self-absorption. Sinful self 
absorption. Absorption. Who was Abraham more most concerned about in this? Himself. He chose to esteem himself. Catch the psycho terminology there. He chose to esteem himself and his own supposed self-worth and entitlement above the plan and promise of God. He should have been looking out for the safety and security of his wife. He should have been looking out for her honor. But instead, he chose to look out for his own preservation. And he had become callous in his own conscience regarding this sin. You know, apparently it was a regular thing. I don't think he did it just twice. I think they did it repeatedly. Why? Because in verse 13, he explains that when they left his father's house, he told his wife, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place where we go, save me, he is my brother. It's a calculated lie. It was sinful self-absorption and self-preservation. He dragged her into the lie. And they did it repeatedly. Many times. And it appears that God did not chastise them every time. That for the most part, he let it go. You know, God's like that, isn't he? And aren't we thankful that he is? He's so patient. He's so gracious. He doesn't just drop the hammer every time we sin. But beloved, just because God doesn't judge every sin right away does not mean that it is any less sinful and destructive. Beware of the tendency to get used to sin, to tolerate it, to become complacent or callous toward it, to be desensitized to its vileness, to, to, to minimize it or to rationalize it. It is not okay. Ever. It is serious, and its effects are far-reaching. Now, speaking of far-reaching, let's consider all who were dangerously affected by this sin. Besides Abraham. Abraham actually was the least threatened by all this. Go figure. Most obviously, there was Sarah. Think of the fear and distress that this illegitimate relationship would have brought into her mind and heart. Not to mention the outright danger that she would have been in if Abimelech was as evil as Abraham assumed he was. But it wasn't just Sarah. But Abimelech was also in danger of judgment by God himself if he had touched Sarah. And not just Abimelech, but also his servants and his household, we read. Verses 8 and 17 are his servants. Verses 18, his household were affected by this sin. God closed up their wombs. And not only that, but also by implication, the promise of God was in danger. If Abraham and Sarah are separated, how is she to give birth to the promised son? Or even worse... If Abimelech goes into her, how are we to know that son isn't his? What a mess we make. What a tangled web we make. 
when we dabble with sin, when we forget the promise of God, and when we trust in our own strength and wisdom instead of God's. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Sin makes us stupid. It's one of the great biblical truths we need to grasp. It does. And it is a gravely serious thing. And its consequences reach beyond just ourselves. It is not a private matter. It dishonors God. It affects others around us. And it damages our witness to the world, showing we don't really believe the faith we claim. Is God not powerful enough? Is he not sufficient? Is the word not powerful enough and sufficient? And yet when we struggle, how often do we choose rather to isolate ourselves from God's people? To remove ourselves from the influence of God's word? To forget what we know about God and choose rather to listen to Dr. Phil or Oprah thinking they're going to offer us some solution that God doesn't understand. Now, we don't say it that way. But don't we live that way sometimes? Sin makes us stupid. Now, that's an assessment of Abraham's repeated sin. And I hope we're learning some good lessons from it. But if we leave it there, we're going to miss a very important point. We're going to miss, perhaps, the most important point of the entire passage. We will be left to think that Abraham is doomed to continue repeating this cycle of sin over and over and over again. And we may even begin to think that his rise and fall will be determined by his own performance. And then by application, if that is true, then you are going to be left to think that your spiritual stability and your hope in this life is going to be dependent on your performance. And you know that if it were left up to you, you would be doomed to repeat the same sins over and over and over again. And there is no hope to be found there. Just like, friends, there is no hope for us to find in Abraham. That's not why he is here. And if we look at only this, we will fall into this trap of thinking that it all depends on us and that God's power and his grace in this life extend only to the call to salvation, but not also to the sanctification and the faith and the preservation of his people. Well, God saved us from our sins, and now it's up to us to keep ourselves in his love. That is not the message of this passage. And praise God it isn't. So out of the sadness of Abraham's repeated sin here, there sounds a grand, triumphant song of God's recurring grace. And so, as we did with Abraham and his sin, so we also invoke the title here with God and his grace and say, what? He did it again? Here is God, yet again, pouring out waves of grace on his struggling people. Now, I don't know how much time elapsed between verses 2 and 3. I don't think it was long. 
but it was long enough to know that Abimelech's household could not have children. As we see in verse 18. But however long it was, God intervenes in verse 3. By his own perfect timing and with his own divine message. God speaks up and says to Abimelech, Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman you, whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. God literally threatens Abimelech's life because of this matter. Seems a little unfair, but it isn't. God's judgment, God's instantaneous judgment on sin is always fair. It's only by his grace that he doesn't do it more often. But this is news to Abimelech. And Abimelech both defends himself, but he also submits to the word of the Lord. Something Abraham wasn't doing in this moment. Verses 4 and 5, he says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother and the integrity of my heart. In the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now, I don't think this is Abimelech being a, a, a true believer. It could be. I don't know. But I, I don't think that's what this is saying. But here he proclaims his own innocence before the God who is speaking to him and even his good intentions. I don't know that it was lust that made him marry Sarah. Maybe it was. But I suspect it might have been more of a treaty between him and Abraham, whom he surely would have known was very powerful in his military ability. But he proclaims his innocence before God. And now, thankfully, we read at the beginning of verse 4 that Abimelech had not approached her. That is, he had not had a marital relationship with her. In verse 6, God agrees with Abimelech and affirms his innocence. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. There's another important lesson about sin, that it is against God. It wasn't primarily against Abraham that Abimelech would have been sinning. It was against God, he says. But it was God who restrained him. And that last sentence is important. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God kept Abimelech from touching Sarah and keeping this from becoming a much bigger problem. In Abraham's foolishness, God stepped in and sovereignly protected his people and preserved his promise. While we are foolishly sinful, God is still at work. Then in verse 7, God commands Abimelech in life-threatening terms. I know you're innocent, but you're still a dead man. You better make this right. And commands him to return Sarah. And Abimelech obeys. And not only that, but in verses 14 and 15, he gives him increased wealth. And he invites him to make his home in the land. And in verse 16, he gives a substantial gift to Sarah. And restores any honor that may have been compromised through this situation. And so in contrast to Abraham, who endangers everybody in the scene by his foolishness, we see integrity and generosity and honor displayed by Abimelech. 
This sort of reminds me of the story of Jonah, right? Chapter 1, when the storm rises and the prophet of God is the reason everybody is in danger because he's running, he's not believing God, he's going the other way. And the pagan mariners in the boat have more fear of God than the prophet himself. It is ironic and not a little bit embarrassing, isn't it? When the lost behave with more integrity than Christians. And yet it doesn't mean that all was lost with Abraham. It doesn't mean that Abraham was now cast off forever, never more to be used for the Lord, even here in the present situation. In fact, in verse 7, God calls Abraham a prophet. This blows my mind. I'm still not sure if I like it or not, except that it's the word of God. But this is so over the top to me. God calls him a prophet and directs Abimelech to go to Abraham so that Abraham will pray for him. His forgiveness depends on the unfaithful one's prayer. Now, this is the first time the word prophet is used in Scripture. Generally speaking, it has the idea of one who stands between God and men and communicates the word of God to men and represents man to God. And in this case, Abimelech's forgiveness actually depends on the intercessory prophetic prayer of Abraham, the one who was responsible for this whole mess. What a picture of God's restoring grace in the lives of his people. And this is what I want us to see about God in this passage above all else. We know we're like Abraham. We have the same kind of sinful nature he had. We know that we fall into the same traps over and over again. We know that we are prone to the whole process of thinking that Abraham gave into. We know that sin creeps up over and over and over again. And we may be tempted that because we have committed the sin more than once or even countless times, that that means God no longer has use for us. And the opposite is true. God is the gracious restorer of his wandering people. Our sin is terrible, but it is not the end of the story for us. Not if we are in Christ. As one preacher said, God's faithfulness trumps Abraham's faithlessness. God has sworn himself to protect his people and to preserve his promise. And time and time and time again in Abraham's life and in my life and in your life, God has demonstrated himself to be gracious, patient, forgiving, almighty, and faithful. Has he not? If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love 
toward those who fear him. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Therefore, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. And the God of all peace himself will sanctify you completely. And your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Where in those verses do you see anything about your ability to hold yourself in his Why? Because God's promise and plan is stronger than that. It's better than that. It's not something you can imagine on your own. It is his plan. And just as strong as he is to bring it into play, he is strong to bring it to completion. Now, as we bring this to a close, I want us simply to consider two simple points of practical application. Number one, be on guard against sin. Be on guard against sin. Don't ever say, not me. I wouldn't do that. Don't even say that about the worst sins you will. And don't ever think I've already learned that lesson. We are all vulnerable to sin. Victory once doesn't mean we won't fall again. Beware the tendency, even among Christians, to emphasize grace so much that we minimize sin and forget its seriousness and consequences. Remember your own innate sinfulness and weakness, and stop blaming others for your sin. Be vigilant. Flee every hint and every temptation to sin. Second, rest in the marvelous grace of God, who has defeated sin through the Lord Jesus Christ and will preserve you by his Holy Spirit forming Christ's likeness in you and finishing the work that he has begun in you. We are sinners, but God is grace. By God's grace, you have the power to live a godly life. I don't care what you have witnessed. I don't care what you have experienced. And I don't care what you have committed in the past. You can live a godly life by God's grace and in his power. You can resist sin. You can walk in, God, in, in righteousness and godliness. And when you sin, God is faithful to forgive and to restore and to continue to work in you and use you for his glory. So press on, Christian. Pursue holiness. Pursue Christ-likeness. Striving with all of the energy that he works in you. Are you overcome by sin this morning? 
That doesn't have to be the end of the story for you. God is gracious. Turn your eyes to him. Look to him for forgiveness, and he will restore. He will sanctify you. He will make you godliness, godly through his spirit, through his word, and yes, through his people. Struggling with sin? Turn your eyes to God. Open your Bible and get around his feet. And friends, if you've never come to a point of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have never come to a point where he is your Savior and your Master, then this is a call for you to turn away from sin and believe in him. Your sin has made a separation between you and God, and it will result in your eternal damnation. But Christ has died on the cross, and he has borne in his own body the, pen the punishment for sin that we deserve, so that all who come to him by faith and humble obedience and humble dependence crying out to him for mercy, will be saved. So if you're without Christ today, I urge you, flee from sin and fly to the Savior.